0: Thank you for singing out. And now we are looking to God's Word. We're continuing in the Gospel of John, and in particular, we're in what's called the Upper Room discourse. And the as the Lord met with His disciples there on that uh, Last Supper night, the Thursday before Passover, the night before in which He before His crucifixion. And again, verse the first cha- chapters 13, 14, 15, 16. Uh, preparing the way, teaching them, final instructions. In chapter 17, he turns to prayer. And in verses 1 to 5, we often say he he prayed for himself. But if you read those verses again, you'll see that really he was praying about the glory of God in his mission and in the returning to the the glory shared with the Father in heaven. But starting at verse 6, he prays, for his disciples. Uh, then at the end of the section. In verses uh, 20 to 26. He specifically prays for us. And so you see that when he says. You know, in verse 20. I do not pray for these alone. But also for those who will believe in me through them. So that will be especially. We'll come to that next week. Lord willing. But that's when the Lord specifically is praying for us. But as he prays for the disciples, there is much there that is also prayer for us. And uh, we're going to be looking at the half of that today. Uh, The prayer for the disciples is verses uh, 6 through 19. But we're going to be looking at verses 11 to 19 today. But to get the context, I'll start at verse 6 in reading. I encourage you to follow in your Bible. Jesus says, I've manifested your name to the men whom you've given me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things which you have given me are from you. For I've given to them the words which you have given me. And they have received them, and have known surely that I come forth from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And here's where we begin. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. And none of them is lost, except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word. And the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So as we begin our section, kind of in the middle of his prayer for the disciples, and, and imagine what that was like. You know, again, for three years that they'd, they'd been with him, they'd watched the miracles, they'd heard him teach. This evening was a difficult evening. I, they're still not quite getting it. They can see he's troubled, they can see he's pouring out his heart. And I wonder over the rest of their lives, if they wouldn't, their minds wouldn't drift back to the Lord's standing. Remember it says that as he began, he, he, he lifted his eyes to heaven. He went from looking at them and teaching and his, his focus is on the Lord. But what a privilege it must have been. What a blessing. And how often they must have listened again in their hearts to Jesus praying for them. And what was on his heart as he talked to the Father about them. I've heard over the years again and again of some who can remember growing up and listening to a parent or a grandparent and, and what it meant to them to hear by name themselves being prayed for. Here the disciples are listening to the Lord Jesus Christ pray to the Father. Well, in verse 11 he begins and he says, Now I'm no longer in the world. Now, what does he mean by that? What does he mean I'm no longer in the world? Of course he's in the world, but this is what he's saying is he's no longer in the world in terms of the fact that he is no longer he's leaving he's he's ready to leave and it's so real that he is um he's able to say here i am i'm coming it's it's in other words it's so uh certain in his mind that he's it's already it's already an accomplished deal what a blessing that must have been to him to to realize that and see that I'm going to take a moment here I've got to look at something you'll excuse me lost my place so he begins then by saying it's an accomplished fact I'm no longer in the world it's done and I've used the illustration many a time when someone will, you know, the game is still going, but they're saying it's all done. And, and um, you know, there's, they have one minute and they're behind by four touchdowns. You know, that's the time when you start heading to the car and, well, probably before one minute. But no, it's, it's over. The game's over. Well, you might say technically it's not. There's time on the clock. It's over. That's what Jesus is saying here. But he says, I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I am coming to you. And so he's leaving, but he's leaving them behind. And again, that, that had to have been troubling to the disciples. He's leaving us. Now, he's, he's, he's made it clear already, I'm going, I have to go away. And it's to your advantage that I'm going away. Because um, as I go. I'll be sending the helper. I'm not going to leave you orphans he says. But I am leaving. And so he makes it clear. He's leaving the disciples. As he's coming home. And it's that. That's what's in his mind. As he's praying. Uh, He's first praying for Lord. I'm looking forward to coming home. But now. Now. Uh, he's praying with regard to the fact that they're staying. And that's his prayer. How does he pray for them? Well, he prays, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you've given me that they may be one as we are. Now, by the way, again, one of the things we look for in Scripture often are are you look for words that are, are repeated again and again. Uh, in this passage, in this, this chapter, I think some four times, or at least even in just in this part of the prayer, uh, four different times he refers to God's name. And so that kind of stands out as something important. And we mentioned earlier when, he said, when we talked about you know, name, especially in the, in the biblical world, was more than just a label. We look at it as a name as kind of a label, something you can you know, wear a badge and say, I'm so-and-so. But to them, someone's name was, was their identity. It spoke of their, their character. It spoke of their essence. Uh, it's interesting, actually, the Jews, you know, the scripture says that we're not to take the Lord's name in vain. And so they, they go overboard with that. And so they won't even pronounce God's name. Um, and so often, as a matter of fact, one of the ways they often refer to God is they re- just refer to him literally the name. That's, they, use, they say Hashem. Uh, In other words, that's how they call him. He's the name. Well, here Jesus is referring to to the Father and say, keep them through your name. That doesn't mean put a label on them. But keep them by who you are, by by your majesty, by your glory, by your holiness, by all of your attributes. Keep them. Preserve them. And this kind of brings to mind a a passage we've mentioned, I'm sure, a number of times in Proverbs 18.10. It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. I don't know if the Lord might have even had that proverb in mind as he was speaking. But Lord, keep them. Keep them safe in the fortress of who you are. And that's the idea of in your name. He says and keep them that they may be one as we are one. He's here praying for them to be unified. Now but I have to tell you this this verse is often abused. When Jesus says keep them or that prays that they may be one as we are one, some will use that as a as a license for broad uh, ecumenical movements. So anyone who names the name of Christianity or Jesus or Christ or something we're all one and if we're discerning at all we recognize that many who name the name Jesus and many who meet in churches uh, totally abandon uh, Christ in their teaching and in their following they deny who he is they deny his teachings and so this is not a a, just a stamp of absolute unity for everyone who names the name but rather speaking of the real body of believers. And he's here speaking of the fact that he's praying specifically for the disciples, but we'd be included in this. There is a oneness for those who know the Lord, for those who are born again. And I've mentioned again, to me, this is one of the privileges of being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have family all over the world. And that's something that if you've ever traveled to another town, traveled to another country Um, it's an amazing thing to gather with the saints and realize we're family we have so much in common Uh, I used to see that especially I went to a church that often had people in, in Jerusalem that often had you know every Sunday or every weekend they would they would have a there would be other people there and it was just wonderful to see so often there was just this sense of never met you before we may not even have a common language, but there was a commonality in Christ. That's wonderful. And he's, so here he's praying, Lord, keep them and keep those who know you as one in the body of Christ. He goes on in verse 12 and says, while I was with them in the world, I, I kept them in your name. Again, in your name. Again, not a label, but in, your, in who you are. In all of your majesty, in all of your glory, in all of your attributes, in all of your essence, I kept them in you. Those whom you've gave me, I have kept, and none of them is lost. Here's a good example of someone who's been given a responsibility. Maybe as a parent, you you give your child something and say, here, take care of this. And then it's, it's a joy when actually everything... Everything that was put into their trust is accomplished. Everything that was put into their hands is delivered. Uh, sometimes it's frustrating. Wait a minute, I gave you six of whatever it was. Why are there only three? Now, sometimes the answer is easy. It's chocolate. You really didn't expect all six to arrive untouched. But, but the point is, what, where is everything? And Jesus is saying, you entrusted me with these. You gave them to me. And I've kept them safe. So our Lord, at the end of his life and ministry, is saying, I'm coming home. I've finished my task. And again, it's, it's, into the cross is ahead of him, but it's so clear that he doesn't even, it's, he's assuming it's already done. And what he's saying is, Father, I did what you told me to do. I've been faithful. Kind of reminds me of what Paul says at the end of his life, right? I've run the race, I've finished the course. I've got I've done it. I'm prepared to go home. There's a great peace in Jesus' heart because he was faithful to the Father. He accomplished his given task. That should be the, a goal for each and every one of us, so we can come to the end of our lives and say, Lord, I've been faithful. I've accomplished what you called me to do. And Jesus said, I've kept them. None of them have been lost. Again, remember he called himself the good shepherd. And that was something, a very big deal with shepherds. If they went out with 100 sheep, they better return with 100 sheep. Um, And so that, that would be that sense of accomplishment. They're all safe and back in. Remember, and Jesus even says, well, someone does the final count. Wait a minute, one's missing. He leaves the 99. He goes looking for the one. That's how important it was to the shepherd. Well, Jesus is saying, I'm the good shepherd. I've kept the flock. They're safe. He accomplished his mission. Everything entrusted to him. Not one has been lost. I've, I quote at times Harry Ironside, the Bible expositor of a previous generation. He says this about this passage. People call this the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. But I rather like to think of it as the perseverance of the Savior. He says those that thou gavest me I have kept. If I had to keep myself I would be hopeless of getting through. This is what's so important to us. It's not that we hang in there you know, by the strength of our nails <laughs> digging into the the rock. No, he keeps us. If, if my security, if my security of my salvation was based on my work, my effort, I'd give up hope now. But my security is in him. And that gives me utter confidence. And so Hesway says, if I had to keep myself, I'd be hopeless of getting through. I'd be sure that something would happen someday which would cause me to lose my hold on Christ and be lost. But it is his hold upon me on which I rely. None can pluck the believer out of his hand. I receive great comfort from these words. When he gives his account to the Father, when the last believer of this dispensation is safely arrived in heaven, he will be able to say of the entire elect church, those that thou gavest me, I've kept, and, not, and none of them is lost. And so the Lord, with satisfaction, is saying of the disciples, The ones you gave me, I haven't lost any of them. And at the end of this age, when he's, we stand in heaven, he'll say the same thing. That one you gave me is lost. Now, there is that, he goes on though and says, Except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, he's not saying, okay, you gave me 12. Here's 11. Um, That's not so good. I'm not sure if that would be, you know, that's certainly not, I'm I'm not sure if that's a full A. That might be a B plus. (laughs) Um, You know, you get home and you count the kids and, you know, you've got your six kids and you've got five of them. That's that's pretty good. That's not going to (laughs) wash And so what is he saying here? I, I, I kept them all safe, except, the, except one. He's talking about Judas here. But what is he saying? The ones that you gave me, I have kept. Judas was not one of the given ones. Or Judas was not one of the elect. Judas never knew the Lord. This is not a verse that says we can lose our salvation. What he's saying is, he calls him, and he doesn't even name him here. Notice, by the way, at this time, Judas is already gone. He's already gone to gather the, the troop that will come and arrest Jesus, and he'll betray him with a kiss. He's, but, but he doesn't even name him. I don't know if he was afraid if I name him. The 11 would jump and say, we're going to go catch that guy. But he called him the son of perdition. That word perdition, when he says that the son of perdition is, is one who is lost. None of them is lost except the son of perdition. Now, the word lost is the word for destruction, which is what the word perdition means. It's actually they're related Greek words. And so you could translate them, none of them is lost except the son of lostness. But that sounds weird, so we'll say the son of perdition. But what he's saying is, and what does that mean when he calls him the son of destruction? Well, in the scripture, again and again, when you call someone a son of, that's a way of describing their, their essential character. Remember Barnabas, one of the heroes of the New Testament? That wasn't really his name, that was a nickname. And his nickname, we're told in Acts 4.36, he was called by the apostles. They gave him a nickname. Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. In other words, he was such an encourager that they called him a son of encouragement. It was just, um, he was always encouraging. <clears throat> to the Pharisees, uh, Jesus criticized them, that they went out and, and made disciples. They traveled across the world to make proselytes, to, to, bring, to convert Gentiles to the Pharisaic religion. And what did Jesus said, you make the Gentile twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Speaking of their ultimate character. Remember uh, the sons of Zebedee, James and John. Jesus gave them a nickname too. Sons of Thunder. I'm not sure they looked at that as a compliment. (laughs) And I'm not sure their colleagues did either. But he would say, boy, you two are sons of... So see what I'm saying? Son of is saying that's their character. In Ephesians 2, a number of times, Paul refers to the lost as um, the sons of disobedience. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5, Jesus says to the believers you are all sons of light and sons of the day are you getting the point son of means this is your character and and Judas was a son of destruction it's not that he became a believer and and and, and Jesus grabbed him and lost hold of him he was never in Jesus hand he was not one of the ones that Jesus that the father gave to Jesus He was lost that was his character and that was his destiny he did not know the savior he was not one of those whom the lord would open the eyes of he was a man destined for destruction and so what that tells us is he was never born again jesus in in john chapter 6 verse 7 he said to the disciples did i not choose you twelve Yet one of you is a devil. So he, he was never deceived. They were deceived, the disciples, but, but Jesus knew all along. I have 12 disciples, but only 11 born again. And one of the ways that really hit me was, is in John 13:10, when Jesus was washing their feet. And, 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 and Jesus was explaining, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. Remember, Peter? Wash my hands. Wash my head. And Jesus said, okay, Peter, take a notch off. <laughs> he who is bathed, only his feet get dirty during the day. He, he, just, he just needs to, a little cleansing because he's completely clean. And he said to the disciples, and you are all clean, but not or you are clean, but not all of you. So the point I'm trying to say is Jesus is not saying, I did pretty well, 11 out of 12, not bad. No, he's saying, I kept the 11 you gave me. And all along, Judas wasn't one of the given ones. He was, he was, he was lost. And so I, 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 I didn't lose him because he's not one of the kept ones. The ones you gave me, I kept. And he even goes on to say that the scripture might be fulfilled. And this wasn't a surprise. When he could tell the disciples, one of you is a devil. One of you is not clean. It wasn't a surprise, but it's even part of the prophecy. In in Psalm 41.9, it says, Even one of my my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who I ate bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That was Judas one of Jesus' close associates and a traitor. That was part of God's plan. So Jesus didn't fail, and that's his point. He keeps us. So this is not a verse that's going to give us trouble. If you're truly a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are in his hand, and he will not let you go. And so Jesus is saying, again, you notice he's praying this out loud. And so this is like the Sunday school teacher who might be praying. Lord, as, with, you know, as, as they're praying, maybe before the snack, and he sees one about ready to stab a pin into one of the other kids, then Lord, help us to keep our hands to ourself. Help us not to be harmful and to be loving and kind. You know, it kind of, it's, there's a sermon in the prayer. Well, Jesus is praying for their benefit to know I've got you, I've kept you, and I'm giving you into the Father's hands. You're safe, you're safe. Verse 13, he goes on, but now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. He says, these things I speak in the world, again, I'm praying this out loud for their benefit. I want them to know these things. What he's basically is he's, it's just like when he said at the grave of Lazarus, Lord, I'm going to pray out loud, but you know what's in my heart. I'm praying out loud for their benefit. And here he's praying out loud for their benefit. But, you know, it's not manipulative. This is his heart. He wants them to know his heart and his care. And what does he pray that they that they may have, that, that they have my joy fulfilled on themselves? He is praying out loud to give them joy. And this is a dark night. This is a dark night. But he wants them to have joy in the in the days to come and in their lives, and that's the purpose of his prayer. Where is the joy coming from? Well, as the Father answers the prayer and keeps the disciples safe, they will recognize, they'll look back and say, this is exactly what my Father prayed for. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. As they experience the joy of knowing their relationship with Christ and his relationship to the Father, as they hear that loving prayer for them, that gives them such encouragement and joy. How it must have uh, you know, though they, no, he said, one of you is a traitor, and all these other disappointments. It would give them joy to know Jesus knew and loved them. What a joy to know that though He's gone, He's entrusted them to the Father. You're in good hands. Again, to use the picture of, of children in Sunday school, that sometimes doesn't communicate well as the parents make the handoff don't worry you're in good hands and then they start singing the hallelujah chorus in a different language <laughs> um, you'll be okay trust me and so as Jesus prays they can experience the same joy Jesus had right then knowing God's plan and care and knowing communion with the Father see joy isn't determined by circumstances. Joy is determined by a settled conviction in heart. And even as he's talking to the Father and communing in love, the troops are marching towards the garden. Things are being set in place for his trial and crucifixion and yet there's that joy of knowing this is God's plan and his plan is good. So as we look at this part of the section, we can see the Lord is the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. He protects the sheep. And the Father and the Son are united in that care for us. Jesus was leaving. He wants them to know, but they're not forsaken. Our eternal security is bought by Christ and we're kept in him. This is so important. I don't earn my salvation by my efforts. I don't keep my salvation by my efforts. He bought my salvation at infinite price on the cross, and He keeps me with His infinite power and infinite grace. Not one who is given to the Son by the Father is ever lost. The familiar song, more secure is no one ever than the loved ones of the Savior. That's us. We can rest in him. He then prays for our protection. Verses 14 to 16. Verse 14, I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I'm not of the world. God's word brings joy to the disciples, but anger and hatred from the world around them. Those who receive the word, who embrace Jesus Christ as Savior, that's all. It's, it's, no, Trusting Christ is built on believing his truth, who he is, and he's talked about that. They know, I was with you in heaven, I came to earth. What he did on the cross, dying for our sins, what he promises. So embracing that is receiving the word. When we do that, we are, he says, redeemed out of the world. He doesn't use the word redeemed here, but we're no longer part of the world. We've been snatched out of it. And again, the, the world is, is, means that system of that organized rebellion against Jesus Christ and against the Father. So, the, so sometimes the world means all humanity. Sometimes it means the globe. But in this context here, it's meaning The rebels. And we are all born members of the rebellion band. But by his grace, some are brought out of that. And those who by his grace are brought out through believing in Jesus Christ. We're no longer part of the world. And we're no longer part of the world now. Our former associates become our enemies. Because we're now friends of God. The world hated Jesus, and so it hates those who follow him. Sometimes we're surprised by that. Why is there so much animosity against born-again believers? We're not that bad. Just look at what they did to Jesus. It's true. Maybe we're not so bad, but Jesus was perfect and holy and good (laughs) always. And yet they hated him enough to... Brutalize him and, and and execute him and turn him over to the Romans. They hated Jesus, so don't be surprised if they hate you for following Jesus. That word "hate" has taken on meaning in our days, hasn't it? Now there's now it's it's become a noun, a hater, uh, and we talk about people who are haters. What do they usually mean when they speak of haters? Usually what they mean is people who believe there's moral absolutes. In other words, it is hateful to say that's wrong. It is hateful to say something is a, if I can use even a stronger term, sin. And Do I dare use the word abomination? But if I... Use words of scripture and use the judgment of scripture. If I evaluate on the basis of God's inerrant word and say something that's right, that's wrong, that's called hate. We are called haters because we believe in moral absolutes. We believe it's wrong to kill an unborn baby, that's hateful. We believe it's wrong to have sexual relations outside of marriage, that's hate. Believe it's wrong. Homosexual relations are always wrong. That's hate. It's wrong to say that God created only two genders, male and female. That's hate. And they even say it's unscientific. And I've mentioned this a number of times, but for a long time they used to say, "Oh, Christians, so anti-scientific in their beliefs. They're they're flat earthers." Come on, who's look around. Who's unscientific now? And so it's wrong to say, boys shouldn't be a part of girls' sports. And we could go on and on. It's hateful, they say, to say those things. So the, notice the hate isn't because we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. We believe in an infinite God or, or things. It's, it's not theological issues that we are under attack for today. It's the moral issues. Either way, that's and that's their problem with God. I've shared a number of times when I was kind of listening in on a conversation after class, I'd like to go up and just listen to the questions that would be peppered at the professor. You sometimes learn more there than during the whole lecture. One of my professors, someone was asking, I didn't hear the question, but the professor's answer is, no, the idea that there's a God out there that we have to give answer to for our, um, and I won't go into details, but for, our, for immoral behavior, no. Nah. There is no God. We give answer to no one. And I thought, and he was, he was held up as one of the great Darwin, Darwinists on campus. And it made sense to me. If you've got a moral problem, you don't want a God to answer to. And so you intricately weave some way of saying God doesn't exist. Because if God exists, then I have to, because that was clear in his mind, if there really is a God, then I've got to answer to him. Well, should I change my conduct? No, I'll just say there is no God. And kind of like in some cities where they're saying we have a crime problem, if we get rid of the police department, then we have no one's saying something's wrong. And that's working great. In cities all over America. <laughs> but, but in other words, that's, that's the fallacy of it. But that's how they are arguing that we're haters because we say there's right and wrong. There's truth and error. So my word to us is do not be surprised if the world hates you. please. Make sure it hates you because you're following Jesus and not just because you're an obnoxious person. Let it be because we're following Christ that they hate us. Because of that truth, don't try to win their approval by becoming like them. That is a major problem in modern Christianity in America, in the West. Churches try to win the lost win the world's approval by becoming like the lost. By soft peddling, one of the things they'll do is they'll increasingly soft peddling God's moral absolutes. And so you will find more and more churches and Christian leaders that aren't willing to make an absolute stand on this is right and that's wrong. Or if they believe that, they just don't want to talk about it. And say, well, that's not our purpose. Our purpose is this or that instead of being, and they're afraid to say this is right and that's wrong. So you're not going to win the world's approval that way. And you're not going to win the Lord's approval that way. A couple of quotes from previous generations. A.W. Tozer said, to be right with God has often meant to be in trouble with men. It comes with the territory. He said, we, "We who preach the gospel must not think of ourselves as public relation agents." I get emails all the time about how to be a public relations—you know, our church—how to make our church a, more of a public relations agency. Uh, We're not sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We must not imagine ourselves commissioned to make Christ acceptable to big business, the press, the world of sports, or modern education. We are not diplomats, but prophets. And our message is not a compromise, but an ultimatum. This is not a new problem. Back in the middle 1800s, there was a little-known Baptist preacher, Charles Haddon was her first two parts of his name, Spurgeon. He said, we will modify nothing. If truth bears a stern aspect, we will not veil it. If there be an offense in the cross, we will not conceal it. This shall be my answer to those who would have us attune ourselves to the spirit of the age. This is 150 years ago they were really dealing with this. I know no spirit but one, and he is the unchanging in every age. Your extravagance of doubt shall have no influence over us, except to make us bind the gospel more closely to our hearts. If if we gave you an inch, you would take a mile, and so no inch shall be given you. Our resolve is to live for the book as we read it, for the gospel as we rest in it, for the Lord as he made atonement, and for the kingdom as it rules over all. I beg every trembling Christian to take heart, put on his Lord's livery, and advance to the fray. Come out now if you never did before. Come out if there is any manliness in you in these days of blasphemy and rebuke. So it's not a new problem. The, The challenge has always been there, and the temptation has always been there, how do we make it, it palatable? How do we draw crowds without confronting them? And so, so much of the church growth movement is—they tell you, don't put up a cross that has bad over—that has implications. Don't speak the word sin. That our surveys tell us that isn't popular. But the warning is: be careful. D.A. Carson said, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise, and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift toward superstition, and we call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of the lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we've escaped legalism. We slide toward godliness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. One more, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, She invariably attracts it. We don't draw people to Christ by making Christ like lost people. We draw people to Christ by showing them there's hope. Hope for forgiveness, hope for change. Verses 15 and following 16 he's, he says I do not pray that you should take them out of the world but that you should keep them from the evil one they're not of the world just as I'm not of the world again as he's talking to the father we're listening he says the world may hate us we're we're out of the world but we're not out of the world how's that for confusing. So he's saying, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. Wait a minute. He says, they're not part of the world. We're, we live in the among the world, but we're not part of them. In, but not of. And that's so important in our Christian life. To live. We, we're here. And so he's saying, I want them in the world. Maybe if you've ever dealt with meats or something and, and they tell you to you know sometimes you really have you, you take the, the spices and you really grind them into the, the meat to, to make sure that it permeates. You don't leave the spices in a jar here and put the meat over here and just hope somehow that's going to make a difference. We have an influence for Christ by being among the world, but not being of the world. By the way, that's true in church too. You can be in the church building, but not of the church, sharing in the faith and life of the gospel. First John talks about that. Those who departed from the faith, he said, they, they, ne- were, they were never believers. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. And so he's saying, we're in the world, but we're not of the world. Please make sure that you're not in the church but not of the church you're not just uh, warming a pew but you have a heart warmed by the gospel but he's speaking here about our place in the world and he's saying um, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world but I am asking you protect them in the world keep them from the evil one Now, some of your translations might have the evil I, I didn't check grammatically it can go either way it could be the evil or the evil one. I, I think this translation is best. Keep them from the evil one. So the point is, in the world, who's the, who's the head of the evil? Who's the head of the world? Who is the one who is over this world system of rebellion? In Second Corinthians 4.4, 4, Satan is called the god of this age. God small g. The one they worship and follow. In John 14.30, Satan is called the ruler of this world. In 1 John 5.19, let me say those again. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, John 14.30. And now 1 John 5.19, we know that we are of God and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Our, our enemy is smart. He's powerful. He's been practicing and learning his trade for thousands of years. But our father is not just smart. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's not just powerful. He is omnipotent. And he is loving. And he is compassionate. Satan is the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning. Jesus said. How could we face him in battle? Kept by the Father. Kept by the Father. And Jesus said, they're not of the world. Speaking of his followers, just as I'm not of the world. We're in it, but not of it. And that's a challenge. James 1.27 talked about that. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. To visit orphans and widow in their trouble. And to keep oneself unspotted or undefiled, unstained. From the world. Sometimes if you dabble with stuff. It's a challenge not to get spotted. If you see me with a paintbrush. I guarantee you there will be spots on me. Um, But how do you live in the world. And remain unspotted by God's grace. And so he says in verses 17 to 19. Sanctify them by your truth. We don't use the word sanctify in normal conversation, but it basically means, it's the word for holiness. And holiness essentially means to be set apart. Set apart from sin, set apart to God. Now, it can be used in a secular way, set apart from common usage, set apart for particular uses. Many of us in our homes, we have um, some dishes that are set apart for guests. And other dishes the family get. Um, they're, they're, they're common. And especially the kids. You especially want those things that'll bounce when they hit the floor. They're common. Um, and then there's the special. He's saying, set them apart, make them holy. How, he, how does he set us apart? By your truth. Your word is truth. God's truth transforms us because it shows us who God is. And it shows us who we are. Again, Isaiah, right? When he saw the Lord, what did he say? Woe is me, I'm undone. Because I've seen God for who he is and I, now I see who I am. You know, we can feel we're, our hands are perfectly clean as we go into the washroom to clean up. And then we turn on the light and say, "Oops." God's truth shows us who we are and God's truth shows us the way of transformation. Again, truth is a problem. He says, suddenly sanctify them by your truth. In our age, that's another thing they deny, that there's truth. Have you heard the expression, that's your truth. This is my truth. And you can't live that way. You go in for heart surgery and the doctor starts cutting on your toes you say your oh, doctor that's not where my heart is that's your truth he says my truth it's right down here your truth should be you need to get out try that with a police officer who pulls you over for blasting past a school bus with the red lights flashing he says you just went through a school zone past a, a bus with the kids going off and you were doing 65 miles an hour Officer, that's your truth. My truth is I'm riding my bicycle very slowly. That's not going to work, is it? You can't live like that, but that's how our world... That's the only way we can deal with the fact that there's truth that's condemning. And so our truth sets us apart. God's truth sets us apart as to how we see the world and where our loyalties are. Lord, set them apart as, and, and he goes on to say, as you sent me into the world, so I'm sending them. God sent the Son into the world to be his light in darkness and to bear his truth to the lost. And so you notice he says, verse 19, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself. He's not making himself more pure, more righteous, but he set himself apart for the mission of entering into this world. He set himself apart to leave the ivory palaces. He set himself apart so that he no longer displayed his glory. He set himself apart to become a weak and dependent human being. He set himself apart to the shame and the curse of the cross. And so he set himself apart so we might be sanctified by the truth. And so what the Lord is praying here is as he came to win us to himself, he wants us in the world, in but not of, set apart while in the world, To show the world Christ and to continue his mission of winning the lost. His mission of dying for our sin was a one-time deal, and he did it. But the mission of, of, of showing Christ to a lost and dying world, that continues. Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. I'm asking you to set them apart to the task and keep them from Satan himself. that they might continue the task of winning the lost to you. Our Lord shows us so much his heart, so much his love for the Father, so much his passion to accomplish God's purposes, and so much his care for us. He bought us for himself. He keeps us secure. And he charges us to be his agents. To bring his truth into the darkness. May God give us the grace to be found faithful. And if you have yet to Embrace the the truth of the gospel. Let me encourage and challenge you to to not, not delay. And if you need to talk about that, we'd be happy to do just that. Our Father, thank you for allowing us into the Holy of Holies to hear your Son praying for his disciples, for us, We confess, Father, our wonder at your grace. We confess, Father, our wonder at your glory. We confess, Father, our dependence on you, but may we be found faithful. May we be set apart to the task of living for Christ in, but not of the world. We pray in Jesus.